In the third week of August, 1992, Hurricane Andrew touched down in Florida. Winds whipped at up to 174 miles per hour. Rain poured down flooding the streets, and people's lives were altered forever by this Category 5 freak of nature. But something else happened. An exotic wildlife facility breeding Burmese pythons was destroyed. They slithered out of the building and into the swampy waters of the Everglades, forever altering the ecology of the entire region. In the following weeks, hundreds of eyewitness accounts would report snakes up to 20 feet long and as wide as a telephone pole. I'm Ori Kagan, and on this episode of Things You Don't Need to Know, invasive species, a drug kingpin's pet hippos taking over a country, bottom-feeding fish that seemed innocent enough, and the vine that ate the South. Invasive species are defined as any kind of living organism that is not native to an ecosystem and causes harm. While the area a species inhabits tends to change over time, it's a slow process which allows the already existing habitat to adapt to a new member of its family. As early as the 1980s, there were various spottings of Burmese pythons throughout the Everglades. This is due to irresponsible owners who would release the snakes when they became too large to keep at home. But it wasn't until Hurricane Andrew that it became a serious problem. The winds continue to blow us around. Uh, again, we haven't been, been with power for a couple of hours now. You reported the Hurricane Center, which is not too far from where we're at, had a peak gust of 152. In the 15 years after the Hurricane Andrew Python escape, populations of raccoons dropped 99.3%, opossums 98.9%, and even the mighty bobcat, 87.5%. That's a true fact. The pythons basically pushed the area's raccoons and opossums to the edge of extinction. The arrival of the Burmese python in Florida is similar to if a family of Tyrannosaurus rex appeared in your suburb on a Wednesday evening at five o'clock. People would be coming home from work, sitting down to eat, or playing catch in the backyard when all of a sudden a massive dinosaur gobbles up half the family. You had no previous knowledge of this creature living in your area, and all of a sudden there's one on every block. This is exactly what happened with the Burmese python. It's estimated about 100,000 of them currently roam the Everglades. Well, I think it would be very Florida of Florida to decide the only logical solution is to release the python's natural predators, lions, tigers, and pumas into the wild, and even offer them complimentary memberships at one of its many golf clubs. They instead opted to allow them to be hunted, even incentivizing the capture of the snakes. Starting in March 2017, citizens of Southern Florida can apply for a job as a Python removal specialist. It pays $8.65 an hour, plus $50 for each Python measuring four feet, and an extra $25 for every foot after that. They'll also dish out $200 for any verified active nests. The following clip is from the Python Cowboy on YouTube. Oh, that is a big In this clip, he's chasing a python through some weeds. Probably gonna have to go right for her head. Whew, my heart's pounding, son. If you go to the Southern Florida Water Management website, the company employing the python hunters, they have a list of total pythons eliminated, which currently sits at around 4,500. However, if you consider the fact that the Burmese python can lay 100 eggs at a time, and there's already 100,000 of them, we're probably just gonna have to accept that they're here to stay. The best thing we can do right now is try to make sure it doesn't happen again, which is why you should be really careful when deciding which pets to adopt.
My name is Tyler Smith from Jungle Bob's Reptile World. Jungle Bob's is a reptile emporium in Long Island, and they really try to make sure that animals go to the right home. We make sure that they know exactly what they're getting into. Um, I feel like I've talked more people out of buying certain animals than, than trying to you know, push or sell onto them. This next part is for my future kids. Just listen to the reptile guy's advice. You can't keep a 20-foot snake in your closet. All right, now that I've gotten that out of the way. Not all invasive species are capable of eating Winnie the Pooh. Some have other strategies for survival, which brings us to the 1876 World's Fair. The 1876 Centennial Exhibition was the first time the World's Fair came to America. From far and near come countless visitors. By every mode of travel, they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. World's fairs are particularly fascinating to me because they were the main way innovation was passed along. Without modern communication, information traveled much slower. You might hear whispers of a metal string of interlocking clasps or a car that had an airplane engine. But for most people, seeing is believing. And that first sight came at the World's Fair. It was the vessel in which the future traveled. And in 1876, it brought Heinz tomato ketchup, the telephone, and even bananas to America. There were also things that didn't take off, like the portable bathtub. And then there was kutsu, a Japanese vine plant that was pitched as decoration. It might look good on your porch or on the side of a building. And it had some small successes. But in 1930, America was facing a crisis. Years of cotton, sugar, and tobacco farming had depleted the soil. Unable to grow crops, the farmers started selling lumber. Without trees, the ground began to erode. To solve this problem, the newly established Soil Conservation Service promptly selected Kutsu as the savior. Kutsu has an extensive root system that can penetrate up to 12 feet deep, and it's fast growing, so it was seen as the perfect solution. The U.S. government supplied 25 million kutsu seedlings to local farmers and incentivized them with $8 per acre, which is only about $128 today, but I guess if you have a large farm, it adds up. Unfortunately, kudzu grows so ridiculously fast that it ended up taking over most of the South. With no natural predators and an extremely long growing season, the invasion was devastating. It quickly gained a reputation as the vine that ate the South growing over trees, telephone poles, lampposts, cars, and abandoned houses. Mile upon mile of foliage. I encourage you to look up a photo of this stuff. It's absolutely wild. It reminds me waking up to find a foot of snow on the ground. An even blanket of green vines. Here's my friend Danny from Mississippi to explain. Yeah, they take over your yard and they block out everything else and kill your grass. And once they're there, they're there, you can't get rid of them. If you hit a baseball in them, like you're not gonna find it. Apparently, some people even shut their windows at night to keep it out. It became a cultural symbol, an analogy, a legend. Authors like Alice Walker wrote about it. Racism is like that local creeping kudzu vine. It swallows whole forests and abandoned houses. If you don't keep pulling up the roots, it will grow back faster than you can destroy it. It was the stuff of nightmares. Its green facade simply a cover for deadly snakes and man-eating insects. Children were told to stay away from it. And there was a perception that kudzu was eating the entire South. It was believed to inhabit seven to nine million acres of land. But that's not exactly true. 
Well, it is incredibly invasive and can grow up to 12 inches in 24 hours. Much like most urban legends, it just doesn't live up to the reputation. Kudzu only covers about 220,000 acres of forest, which is still a lot, but it's a far cry from 7 to 9 million. It also doesn't grow at 150,000 acres per year. It grows at about 2,500. And then there's the introduction of the Japanese kudzu bug, which first appeared in 2009. These little bugs suck the plant of its nutrients, which helps to curb growth. If you go to the south, you'll see a lot of the stuff. It appears larger than life because it grows alongside roads and railroads at the edges of forests where it gets the most light. Roadside overgrowth gives the illusion of endless kudzu, but in reality, it doesn't go much into the forest because it suffers in the shade. The idea of it is terrifying. I can't think of many things scarier than a plant that never stops growing, following you, weaving into your bed as you sleep. But much like your uncle telling you about how big the fish he caught was, it just doesn't live up to the legend. Speaking of fish your uncle caught, carp. The Asian carp has been wreaking havoc on the Mississippi River Basin for years. It all started in the 70s when farmers saw these bottom feeders as an easy way to clean out their commercial ponds. Unfortunately, they quickly spread to the Mississippi River, where they have been destroying the ecosystem ever since. While they're often referred to simply as Asian carp, it's actually four different kinds of fish. Big head, grass, silver, and black. They can lay hundreds of eggs at a time and rapidly dominate waterways. Whether it's eating the other fish out of house and home, or simply pushing them out with sheer numbers, any existing species can't compete with the carp, which can sometimes grow to 110 pounds. These fish are also a danger to anyone boating. Silver carp will often jump out of the water when frightened, and not just little hops. These things can jump 10 feet into the air. So it's only a matter of time before they also invade the NBA. Jumping carp are something the locals know all too well. They hate these fish. These fish are dangerous. They come up and hit a little one in the head, they could kill them. That was Betty DeFord, founder of the Redneck Fishing Tournament, a once-a-year event where people descend on Bath, Illinois to catch as many of these darn fish as possible. These fish fly at you like torpedoes, and they can break things. The Asian carp has gotten within 50 miles of Lake Michigan, and it could take over the Great Lakes from there. This might destroy America's largest body of fresh water, ruining the ecosystem for other fish and wildlife that inhabit it. It's the largest invasive species problem America is currently facing, with the worst case scenario being total invasion. For context, the common carp, which is first introduced in the 1800s, is now found in every major waterway, and it's looking like the Asian carp are well on their way to that as well. In 2007, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service developed a plan to manage and control them. Various attempts include an electric fence and sound barrier to scare them away from Lake Michigan, a $5.9 million dam, and reintroducing the alligator gar, a large sharp-toothed fish that would hopefully feast on carp. However, the most successful project to date is just plain old fishing, not the redneck fishing tournament, professional fishermen. The state of Illinois is paying fishermen to catch as many carp as possible, so far, they've collected over 8 million pounds of the stuff, which is then turned into everything from dog treats to fertilizer. The interesting thing about all this is that China actually has the opposite problem. Carp is not only a part of Chinese culture, but also their diet. This has led to overfishing and their carp population declining. 
It's gotten so bad that they've banned fishing in some of their rivers in an attempt to bring back the population. This presents the obvious solution of Americans eating their way out of the carp problem. And while this is probably our best option, there are a few hurdles to overcome. Carp is full of tiny, needle-like bones, and in a country that invented boneless chicken, even rebrand attempts like Silverfin and Kentucky Tuna have done little to sway the general public. America's carp problem is massive. They're destroying our waterways and could cause billions of dollars in economic loss. But at least they don't kill people. When we return, Africa's most dangerous animal takes over Colombia. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Africa is full of exotic animals, from my perspective at least. Lions, tigers, oh my, no bears. Seriously, there's no bears in Africa. Rhinos, elephants, giraffes, cheetahs, leopards, zebras, antelopes. From the king of the jungle to poisonous snakes, Africa has it all. But the most dangerous of these magnificent beasts is the humble hippopotamus. Here's my friend, Zach Cooper, to tell you about it. Hi, I'm Zach Cooper, and my family owned a safari park in England. And did you guys have any hippos? No, we didn't have hippos. Why not? I think it was down to the fact that hippos are extremely dangerous when provoked and extremely aggressive. Believe it or not, the hippopotamus is the most dangerous animal in Africa, killing upwards of 500 people every year. Yeah, stay clear of hippos, guys. Which is why they were the perfect pet for drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. In the 1980s, Pablo Escobar controlled 80% of the world's cocaine trade. Through a labyrinth of drug runners, government payoffs, and private jets, it was incredibly lucrative. We've all heard the stories of him burning $2 million to keep his family warm, or how he spent $2,500 every month on rubber bands for his cash. And then there's the legend of rats eating a billion dollars of it every year. All of this because no bank would allow him to open an account. At his peak, the Medellin cartel was bringing in more than $70 million a day. With some of this money, he bought Hacienda Napoles, a 5,000-acre ranch complete with kart racing track, zoo, multiple pools and artificial ponds, a bullfighting ring, and a private airport. But he didn't just buy stuff for himself. Pablo was beloved by many of the locals. 
providing them with housing, hospitals, and funding for local football teams. When he was finally found and killed by American soldiers, or Colombian soldiers, or committed suicide, depending on who you ask, all of his possessions remained. His house was left to rot, his estate was turned into a theme park, and the majority of the 200-plus animals smuggled for his private zoo were relocated. But one thing remained, the hippopotamus. Pablo's hippopotami proved too difficult to extract, and with no local zoo having the infrastructure to handle 3,000-pound mammals, they were just left there, where they multiplied. Originally, Pablo illegally imported four hippopotami, an animal native to and only found in Africa. But nowadays, things are a little different. Colombia has over a hundred of them. Once again, this is a case of perfect living conditions. There's plenty of water. Hippos love water. And no predators. Although it is worth noting that due to their massive size, once they reach full maturity, they're pretty much apex predators. Which is terrible news for all the vegetation. Hippos eat about 150 pounds of food per day, and poop just as much. I can't believe this next thing is true, but it is. They poop so much that it contaminates the water to the point that other animals can't survive in it. Remember, there's only 100 hippos. It's fucking crazy. The hippos are also slowly migrating from Hacienda Napolis. Small herds have been spotted, and it's not that uncommon for the occasional hippo to run down Main Street. It's only a matter of time before they'll be competing for territory with humans. In 2009, one of Pablo's original hippos, affectionately referred to as Pepe, was terrorizing the farmers and fishermen of Puerto Berrio. The state issued an order to remove the hippo, and he was promptly killed by soldiers. This sparked an outcry from animal rights activists, whose voices led the Colombian government to ban the killing of hippos. Jumping ahead 10 years, as you already know, roughly 100 hippopotamus roam Colombia, and it's estimated that by 2030, there could be as many as 1,000. They can't send them back to Africa either, not only would it be incredibly expensive, but it's possible these inbreds could cause a disturbance within the pre-existing African population. The current plan of action is neutering, but it's incredibly difficult and not to mention dangerous, requiring trapping them, sedating them, and an extremely long procedure. Scientists have considered chemical castration, but once again, it's dangerous and incredibly expensive. So what if the hippo stayed in Colombia? They've garnered quite the cult following among locals and bring in a decent amount of tourism. Some people even claim they'll fill the void of a large regional herbivore, something that's been absent from the Colombian ecosystem for about 20,000 years. Colombia's hippo problem is at a tipping point. Where it'll go from here, much like everything else in this episode, only time will tell. If there's one thing all these stories have in common, it's people. Invasive species are almost entirely considered a man-made problem. Whether it's a drug kingpin who wants a pet hippo, or the nuclear family whose snake outgrew its cage and was released into the Everglades. Humans, with their planes, trains, and endless desire to have anything and everything, changed the world. Before us, it took thousands of years for a species to relocate, allowing plenty of time for natural integration with their new home. But now, it can be instantaneous. And once an invasive species takes hold, it's very hard to ever remove it. Invasive species is one of many in the long list of man-made problems harming planet Earth. So next time you think about getting a flesh-eating bacteria to do your dishes, just buy a sponge instead. And as always, thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a hyper-object and three uncanny four production. The show is written and edited by me, Ari Kagan, and produced by Harry Nelson and also me. 
Additional help from Shane McKeon and Nuna Sharafadine. Our executive producers are Adam McKay and Laura Mayer. The show is mixed by Nice Manners. If you like things you don't need to know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you leave a review, it really helps us out. So I really appreciate it, and I'll see you next week.